All right. So I've spoken about today uh, a few times uh, over the last uh, few weeks, just kind of getting everybody sort of prepped for it. But we have two gentlemen joining us today. You, you guys, everybody knows and remembers Mike um, Ord. He came and, and blessed us a few weeks ago. It's been actually probably about a month. But I'm just going to quickly let them introduce themselves and uh, why they might be um, uh, authorities on the subject, so to speak. And, um, and then we're going to do a Q&A. I have a lot of questions to ask, questions based just in my own thinking, and then also from Mike's lecture a month ago. And I would imagine that, that you guys have a lot of questions too. So I'd rather you ask, but if you, if you can't think of anything, I, I can definitely get us started. But anyways, gentlemen, Mike, if you wouldn't mind just quickly reminding us, um, give us a little introduction of yourself. Well, I've been... Um doing research in this area in earth sciences for over 40 years and I'm widely published so I, I understand the questions and the problems and the answers we have in the earth sciences and I know enough about biology and astronomy and other fields to maybe get by with a few questions. Okay, I'm Ward Guthrie. It's not on, I think. <laughs> Ward Guthrie. Uh, what's interesting, I'm apparently just a little bit behind uh, Mike, but uh, I uh, am a layman, just like all of you. I'm not a scientist. I haven't studied this stuff in a lot of detail. But um, what happened, my background, because uh, this will kind of help you uh, understand where I'm coming from, is probably in about 1978, I was... Uh, really wrestling with the gap theory and theistic evolution. And I was kind of coming down on one or the other, or both, coming down the sides of that. My oldest brother approached me one day, and he says, Ward, he says, you realize either one of those, you're throwing out the Bible. He says, you either have to accept the Bible as it is, or you accept man's thinking. You can't do both. And so I was wrestling with that and dealing with that a lot. And then Dr. Dwayne Gish came to Grace Bible here, I think it was in 1980, 1981. Mm. Uh, so I'm just a little bit behind you. Is, is that about when you, do you happen to know that? No, I but, but he came, he was the foremost expert on creationism in the United States, going all over the U.S. And he gave a weekend seminar, um, all day Saturday, uh, and then spoke Sunday morning and all day Sunday afternoon. Got me started in this. And so I started reading stuff and and uh, they didn't have online back in those days, but, but getting books and everything else and, and going into it a lot and really settled myself. So uh, from a layman's point of view, I uh, approach this as how does a layman accept this stuff? And of course, I've read a lot of scientific stuff and, and picked it up. Uh, so after doing GISH then, I started teaching this creationism stuff here at Grace. And I developed a full year class on creationism. And I taught it at the college class two or three different times for a full year long. Well, then uh, Mike and Mark came along and really knew what they were doing with the sciences. And so I backed off. <laughs> Let them have it, you know, because I'm just a layman. Uh, but um, so what I did this morning, I went back and reviewed all my notes from those, that full year. And so I have some information here, because I've been away from it for a little while as far as the teaching aspect of it is, because these two great guys are here. So that's my background. Thanks, Ward. 
Um, let me just start, okay? As, as everybody starts to think, what questions would I like to ask? Anything that has to do with evolution, creation, Genesis, um, etc. I saw this last Saturday uh, when I was in Rosars, and I, I don't read the Billings Gazette, but I saw it, and, and it caught my eye. Gianforte, Greg Gianforte was on the cover, and uh, it, the article I grabbed, it said this, dinosaurs have roared into Montana's race for governor with a renowned paleontologist who consulted with Steven Spielberg on the Jurassic Park movies. Okay, everybody knows that the museum here in town, Museum of the Rockies, headed by Jack Horner, um, he was one of the main um, uh, consultants, I think, on Jurassic Park, it says this, a new television ad features former Montana State University paleontologist Jack Horner saying that candidate Greg Gianforte thinks the Earth is only a few thousand years old. Horner says Gianforte supports using taxpayer money to fund private schools that obscure the truth about dinosaurs and the age of the Earth. Um, that, that would be us. <laughs> the ad is funded by a newly formed political action committee called Montana for Truth in public schools. It aired over the weekend on a broadcast and cable news channels in Billings, Bozeman, and Missoula. The committee's treasurer said that the group is concerned that Gianforte would promote teaching creationism and intelligent design along with evolution. Quote, the purpose of the group is to educate the public about Greg Gianforte's desire to use public dollars to fund private schools that may be teaching methodologies in evolution that are at odds with the scientific consensus. They go on to talk about the tax, John Forte's tax records having donated money to our school, to Grace Bible Church, to uh, other nonprofit organizations that support creationism. And the thrust of the article is because he's a creationist, you should not vote for him. And now we had a panel discussion on politics a few weeks ago, but I just wonder if each of you would maybe make a comment about this from a cultural perspective and, uh, uh, and we'll go from there. Well, there's a lot that can be said. Um, first of all, uh, Jack Horner and the media and all that usually present a lot of straw men arguments uh, and this huge amount of misinformation out in the public about this subject and about Christianity in general. Uh, first of all, I doubt whether Greg would uh, <laughs> uh, promote it in the public school because that's almost a dead issue now. It's been the courts, with their biased opinions, have, have practically settled it. You cannot have two sides presented in the public schools. A number of groups tried to uh, bring it forth, but it always failed. And, and looking at the transcripts of some of those trials it indicates the, the judge is extremely biased, and so it's a lost cause from the start. Um, but you know, um, if you take polls of the general public, about 45% believe in young earth creationism, just general public, 45%. And 45%, another 45% believe in some kind of theistic evolution. Only 10% are atheists. And when, then when polled about whether you'd like to see both views presented in the public schools, a large majority in the 80s usually says, yeah, let's hear from both sides. It's a scientific issue. Let's hear from two different ideas. But the, the culture, uh, above which is actually run by atheists, to make, a, make it pretty blunt, says no way, uh, this is a religious issue, uh, therefore be by the separation of church and state which has been turned on its head, you, we cannot allow this in the public schools. So GN40 is going along with at least 45% of people in the United States, so he's not a minority in this view. I, I, I don't read the newspaper, 
but I've heard that he's been taken to task on this. And I, to me, I think that um, on his part, it, 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 it indicates wise thinking. Because we should hear more than one side. You are only taught in the public schools and in the culture one view. And there's a Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs in chapter 18 that says that when you hear the, one person's case, it sounds convincing until he's questioned by someone that has another case, you see. So you've only heard one side. But I'll tell you, there's a totally different view on all this stuff. And you can, you can get it by books and on, online. And, and I'm going to give out some cards if, for those that want to, uh, this website, you, uh, creation.com from Creation Ministries uh, International has over 10,000 articles from, for, from various, uh, for various scientific uh, uh, developments, from layman to, to PhD scientists on it. And I uh, have to do a search on it. And that way, if you, uh, you can get your questions answered and, and further information. Where anyway. did you have any thoughts? Yeah. Uh, how many of you heard of the Scopes trial? Okay, who won that Scopes trial? The creationist or the evolutionist? The creationists did. A lot of people don't realize that, first off. Uh, secondly, what was the, the whole push behind that trial? Anybody happen to know? It's the creationists had control of everything that was taught in the schools. And the evolutionists say, no, that's not right. We need both sides taught. Yeah, and so they went to court to get both sides taught. They lost. But they've been pushing that ever since, and now it's totally turned around where they say, now we want only our side. Creationists, get out of here. You guys want nothing to do with it. So people don't realize that was the purpose of the Scopes trial, to be equal. But we don't get to be equal today. Yeah. All right. Let's just, let's kind of do it like this. If you've got a question about Genesis, evolution, something that, that is cultural, uh, um, Go ahead and just stand up. Say your question. I might repeat it just for the sake of uh, recording, and and uh, and then we'll see what what answers we have. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, one issue that's heavily debated, a little bit less than evolution, is if quantum mechanics has any um, validity within Christianity as far as a study of it, specifically things like string theory and things like that. Do those oppose creationist viewpoints? And if so, is is it to the extent that we need? Okay, the question is, does string theory, what, what, what kind of relationship does quantum mechanics, particularly string theory, have to the, the, to the Bible and Genesis specifically? I'll take a try at that one. Um, there's a fair amount of physicists and astronomers within creation scientists. We have people from all backgrounds, uh, scientific backgrounds. We actually have a lot of laymen that uh, are participating one way or another. But from what I can tell from my astronomy and physics friends, quantum mechanics is, is they believe it, it's a real thing. And most of them believe in relativity. Um, and so, and from what I could see, it doesn't really pose a problem uh, to, to creation astronomy. As far as string theory goes, uh, from what I've read, that's so speculative and I, with, I think no, data to support it, that most of my friends uh, think it's uh, pure speculation with, with, with 10 dimensions and all kinds of crazy stuff. You, you can't verify. It's like the idea of the multiverse. 
because life, but the, excuse me, the, the universe is so specific here, and they don't like that idea that the universe looks like it's been made for man. They get the idea that, well, there's infinite amount of universes, so this one would occur by chance over billions of years. So that's how they kind of get out of the idea that the universe is designed by things like multiverse. But there's not a single shred of evidence for it. You know, they talk about us uh, in, you know, we believe in miracles from the Bible, but I would say that a lot of times when you read what they believe, it's magic. <laughs> magic on their ideas on how the universe came about. The whole idea of, of their mechanism for biological evolution, mutations, and natural selection, the mechanism's pathetic, but they use that to, to, to account for everything from the single cell up to, to people, uh, evolution. I would consider that a, a, a magic also. Um, I enjoy reading uh, non-creationist scientific articles quite a bit too. Uh, one of the, within the last four or six months, I don't know whatever, but I read an interesting article that there's a lot of scientists starting to back off the whole string theory thing. Like he said, they're starting to realize it just doesn't work. And there's others that push it and whatever. But they don't know in so many things. Another real interesting article along the same line that I read the other day uh, was there's some physicists through mathematics are starting to say eternity is real. Uh, our, our concept of time maybe doesn't exist. Well, isn't that interesting? Coming from atheistic scientists. You know, Christian been saying that all along. So they, they do a lot of research. Big Bang is kind of on the way out. And they start saying it just doesn't work. So a string theory, I think, is just another one of those that is, looks good for a while, and then they start getting into it deeper and find out things just don't work. Thanks, Andrew, for that question. So uh, a lot of scientists seem to be going in their views more towards a new age view, a new age perspective. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Have you seen that? In let, let me be first. I have no reaction because I haven't heard a thing about that. Um, I read their scientific articles. 90% of my reading is uh, earth science journals. And um, I read just what they put out. I don't get their attitudes. I do read a few popular books and articles, but uh, I guess I must say I really don't know the, uh, what their personal beliefs are. Here's where I would come down on that. It's the same thing what my brother said. If the New Age contradicts the Bible, I go with the Bible. I may not understand it, but I've got to have faith that I accept the Bible and I won't accept the other side if it contradicts.
That's interesting. Um, in the geology department, <laughs> I wouldn't have expected it by, by, from geologists or scientists. Um, Maybe let me interject on that. Maybe one thing that Zach is referring to is we, we, we looked at this video in apologetics last year, and because uh, of the overwhelming evidence for design in the universe, some scientists, very prominent scientists like Richard Dawkins, uh, has said that perhaps the best explanation is that aliens planted a life on Earth. And that's kind of going into, uh, I don't know if you qualify that as new age, but maybe that's an, an example of what Zach was talking about. Have you heard something maybe more like that? I've heard a few, few uh, come down on that. Uh, Fred Hoyle, um, who didn't believe in the Big Bang, in fact, he named it as, a, as in derision. And it, the name stuck, the Big Bang. He believed in the steady state theory where, where matter is created from nothing in the center and it expands out. And uh, as it leaves the universe, it's, it's created steady state, which is a dead theory now. But um, uh, he, he, he came to the conclusion, in fact, he even wrote that the, the idea that life can evolve on Earth is like um, an explosion in a junkyard and a Boeing 747 results. That's how he likened evolution. Therefore, him and another uh, physicist from England developed the idea of what's called panspermia, that we were seeded from outer space by aliens, and they got, got the, the first cell going, and then it just took off from there. Yeah, and I've also heard other ideas um, by some astronomers that uh, since the Big Bang has problems and we can't explain evolution, and we don't want to believe in creation. A lot of them are adamant they don't want to believe in creation. I think this is, gets into a spiritual issue. Um, they've said that matter itself has the properties to self-organize itself, just pure matter, physics and chemistry, that just leave it alone and out pops life. And then from life, it will automatically evolve up to us. Not a shred of evidence for this, but there is getting to be a number of um, scientists that believe that. Now that could be part of what you'd call new age philosophy or theology. How many of you have heard of the law of biogenesis? Boy, that's a major one. You guys need to start reading. <laughs> <laughs> the law of biogenesis, this is from the scientific journal. First off, if there's a law of anything, what does that mean? It can never be changed. It can never be broken. There are no exceptions. That's what law of whatever. So they have a law of biogenesis. That means life can only come from life. That's their own law. I'm sorry. But evolutionists and biologists and everything say, but, yeah, we believe the law of biogenesis, but, but, but it had to have been broken once. Well, then it's no longer a law. Let's have another question. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah, could you describe some of the methods that scientists, whether Christian or secular, uh, use to date things like fossils and rocks and things like that? We hear about carbon fourteen studies being Christian, but are there we talk about carbon fourteen and why it's being Christian and are there any other methods that are used? Let me ask well, let me just say it. Okay. Uh, the the question is um what are the, the various methods of dating things? Uh, maybe what are the positives and, and the, the weaknesses of each? Oh, that's a huge subject, and um, you can 
get a lot of information on creation.com on it, probably hundreds of articles on it. You, can, you have to do a search up in the right uh, dating methods. But carbon-14, first of all, does anyone know what the maximum practical limit of dating carbon-14 is? It's only 50,000 years. That's a pittance when you're talking about millions and billions of years. And, it only dates and carbon. And only accurate to about six to eight is what I've read, correct? No, it, well, it depends on which scale you use it. And there's their time scale. They, they make a certain assumptions about it, the amount of carbon-14 uh, that's developed in the upper atmosphere from uh, cosmic rays is balanced by the amount of carbon-14 decaying back to nitrogen. And that's probably a poor assumption. And then they don't believe, and they use uh, ratios of carbon-14 versus normal carbon-12. And in the biblical model, we have, those ratios were greatly perturbed because first of all, the pre-flood biosphere was at least 10 times as much carbon in it than our current one. So when you do a ratio, you're automatically got, you're quite, you're gonna get quite old results for pre-flood material buried during the flood. And also, uh, the flood totally destroyed all the biology. Then you had to restart again. So that, these are perturbations in the carbon-14 system. We usually say the, the carbon-14 is good for probably about the first 2,000, 3,000 years. And then you have to telescope the dates to within 6,000 years. There's a lot of information on websites and books on the carbon-14 method, but that's just one method. Uh, there's lots of other dating methods, which I'm fairly familiar with, that give old ages, like uranium changing to lead. It has a, has a half-life where half the uranium-238 changes to lead-206. These are isotopes. Are, are you familiar with isotopes? Okay. It's, a, it's got a half-life of about 1.25 billion years, so half of it would be gone in that time. And so they use that, and also uh, potassium argon, where a certain radioactive isotope of potassium, potassium-40, changes to argon-40, a gas. And because of that gas, there's lots of problems. But anyway, in these methods, which are very complicated, they have to make a lot of assumptions in their methods. Uh, they have to assume that the rate of change has been <clears throat> constant for millions and billions of years. You have to assume the initial uranium and lead, I'll just use the uranium lead method, that they know what it is at the beginning when the rock cooled. You date the time when a rock cools. It's, and then you gotta have a third assumption that, the, that the, when it cools that it's a closed system, that, that within the rock the uranium changes to lead without being interrupted by anything else. No uranium leaving or entering the rock, no uh, lead entering or leaving the rock. But uranium to lead is an 18-step process as far as uranium-238. And one of the pro uh, elements it goes through is radon. And what's coming up in our basements? Radon. And so it, that's a gas. And so it, the, the rock is not usually a closed system. Besides that, uranium can move in and out. Lead is not so, so movable. So all these methods have problems with their assumptions. And also they assume that the, the, that the whole solar system was formed uh, about 4.5 billion years from a big dust cloud that collapsed. 
and the dust cloud was homogeneously mixed as far as the elements go. So they can go to meteorites and get the ratios of, of lead and use that as an initial condition for their uranium lead method. So they have an assumption on the origin of the, of the solar system. So four main assumptions go into this. But we can show that there's something wrong. In fact, we know that there's lots wrong with these, but something really basic. And that's why do they get millions and billions of years still? Well, Russell Humphreys, a, a retired physicist from Sandia Laboratories in New Mexico, uh, got um, a, a granite core down uh, in northern New Mexico. Uh, it, the core was drilled because it was a, a thermal area, and so they wanted to drill down. They got down about two and a half miles, and it gets hotter and hotter down there. And in the granite, which is made up of four minerals, one of them was, is biotite mica. That's that plate, mica's platy. This is the black mica. And in that mica are zircon crystals. And um, very small. And they're very radioactive. And so he measured the amount of uranium changing to lead and got 1.5 billion years for the date from uranium lead. But one of the products in going from uranium to lead are eight helium atoms. So every time uranium changes to lead, you give off eight helium atoms. And helium is a, is a noble gas, doesn't react with anything, and it moves around in the, in the lattice of, of the atoms in the zircon and then moves to the edge and leaks out. So we had the leak rate measured in zircons. And based on the, on the temperature, it's proportional to temperature. And when you did that, he found out that the, from the leak rate, the zircon, uh, zircons were only 6,000 years old. Well, you got two contradictory clocks. A clock is anything that measures the time. Two contradictory clocks, which is correct. Well, the leak rate, which is called diffusion, which is a very understandable physical process, and if it, and it was false, it, it would foul up biology tremendously. So that is probably a very solid. Well, the idea that uranium changing to lead, they don't know why it does it. You know, It's a mystery why a certain amount of uranium atoms, a certain percentage per year, decay to, to lead, and others don't. So the only way to reconcile it is that we had a period of accelerated radiometric decay within the last 6,000 years. And so we can show that you can telescope all these millions and billions of years within 6,000 years based on this example. Of course, the evolutionists know about this, uh, and they've tried to uh, get out of it, but Russell Humphreys has been able to answer all their questions. So he made one comment, uh, looking up in my notes here, about starting con conditions assumed. They assume so many things, but isn't it very convenient that evolutionists, they assume a real high parent element and very low daughter elements to begin with. Then right off their first assumption, everything's old. But it's an assumption. They don't know. Mm -hmm. The other thing related to this, can you date dinosaurs by carbon-14? No, because carbon-14 is entirely gone from the sample in about 50,000 years. And how old do they say dinosaurs are? Much, much older than that. Do they find carbon-14 in the dinosaur bones up here at Museum of the Rockies and elsewhere? Yes. Pretty big contradiction there. I can add more to that. 
because this is an important area. The secular scientists and us, we have sent samples to secular dating labs and dated them by carbon-14. We've not only dated dinosaur bones, which are older than 65 million years old. By the way, if there was beyond 50,000 years, you could still detect some carbon-14 in a sample. It's very small. But beyond 100,000 years, you can't detect it whatsoever. It should be totally gone. So anything that has carbon-14 in it is less than 100,000 years. So based on all these samples, not only uh, dinosaur bones, but coal. Coal is from 15 million to 350 million years old. We always find carbon-14 in coal, dozens of times. They do it, too. The reason they do it is to calibrate the carbon-14 method. That's why they do it. We, and they say, oh, contaminated. Well, dozens of times by young carbon coming down in the coal. No person getting a coal sample deliberately finds a sample that he believes is contaminated. He gets the purest samples in the middle of the coal seam. And so that's a pretty lousy excuse. But we'll, we humored them. We dated 12 diamonds, which are pure carbon. And you know, carbon, uh, diamonds being so hard, you, are probably impossible to contaminate. So the carbon-14, if it's in there, had to originate from inside. Guess what? All 12 of them, we found carbon-14. That means diamonds, which are supposedly be, uh, about 3 billion years old, formed at 100 miles down in the earth that come up rapidly uh, are less than 100,000 years. There's something wrong with the dating methods. We've done a lot of research, and this is just some of the highlights we're giving you. I told you that was going to be a long question. It, it, it can go long, can go all hour. Yeah, that's an important question as well. Thanks, Phil. Yeah. Let's have another one. Yeah, okay. Mike, let me just say, yes, so the yes, question yes. really has to do with the fossil record as it right. pertains to uh, uh, what is the evidence for evolution in the fossil record, I suppose, is a good way to summarize it. Okay. In strata that they date, older than 540 million years, it's called the Precambrian. That's 90% of time in the Precambrian. All, practically all you find as far as fossils are microorganisms, one-celled organisms. But you find them all the way through the rest of the 400, 540 million years. So, and generally, they're, they're the, very similar to organisms, microorganisms that live today, showing no evolution of microorganisms. Then about 540 million years ago, in their time scale, at the transition from the Precambrian to what's called the Cambrian, that's the lowest geological layer. Uh, this is the geological calm. There's a big, long history and some controversy over it. I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to talk about the fossils. They find a huge variety of fossils, much more variety than we have today. More phyla exist in the Cambrian than, than exist now because a lot of them have gone extinct. And um, some of those, they don't, they're not led up to ancestral types. In other words, 
the trilobite. How many know what a trilobite is? It's kind of a, it looks like a potato bug. It's a marine organism that's, that's on the bottom. It's got three segments. That's why it's called a trilobite. They're common fossils. We don't find too many of them in Montana, but I, I know where you can find some. But anyway, um, they're one of the first organisms to evolve. But, it, but like that, that, the trilobite and the other organisms are not led up to by any ancestral forms. There's nothing. Suddenly you find a huge variety. It's called the Cambrian explosion. That can't be explained by evolution. They, they, they try, uh, but it's a huge problem. And you can go all the way up through the fossil record and show that it's composed mainly of gaps with organisms suddenly appearing there with no ancestors. It's called the gaps in the fossil record. In other words, by the mechanism of, of evolution, which is slow changes of mutations and natural selection, you should see very slight changes in organisms over millions of years. But you don't. You don't see those at all. There should be billions of missing links in the rocks, and they're not there. There's a few candidates they have because their back is against the wall, and they find a lot of strange organisms out there. So they've got to have a few candidates, and they do. And anyway, when you get down to the fossil record, it, you find out that those organisms are complex. They're not simple. They thought they were simple at the time of Darwin. Uh, but like, for instance, that, that lowly trilobite, their eyes are like a fly's eyes. They got some great uh, uh, pictures of these in books. And they're made up of hundreds of lenses. And these are double lenses. I'm not sure the significance of that. And the lenses, one, one of them is made out of calcite of the double. And they all are, have to uh, be focused. And they have all the properties to, to deal with light, to focus it and see what they're doing. Other eyes are complex. In fact, it's been said by specialists in optics that the eyes of trilobites are probably more complex than our own. So you don't really have an uh, evolutionary sequence from simple to complex. That's the issue. You don't show it. You have complexity right from the beginning, changing to different types of complexities. As you go up the fossil record, you find more fish, extinct fish, armored fish, for instance. And then finally, you get up to terrestrial organisms. We would explain this generally by ecological variation. See, if you go up by uh, the, the land today and the ocean, you find bottom creatures, and then you find fish, and then you find land creatures. So in the flood, it would probably bury the lower uh, uh, ecological zones first. You know, so most of the, the early Cambrian and others in, in the other type, uh, lower part of that part of the fossil record are generally bottom organisms. The fish are up further, and the terrestrial ones are on top. So we see this as a, a, a burial during the flood. And we wouldn't say it's an evolutionary sequence at all. I hope that answers the question. You probably have something to add. Yeah. Here's some more reading for you to do. How many of you have heard of punctuated equilibrium? One, two, three, <laughs> four. Read about punctuated equilibrium. The evolutionists out there are finally, many of them, starting to admit that we, we don't have evidence. We want these intermediary fossils, and they're not there. So what do we do? So they've come up with this idea that it didn't evolve gradually, but that you had a big exaggeration, but you'll see the, the idea that you had this dog and dog and dog, and suddenly this dog had a cat. That's punctuated equilibrium. That's the only way they can come up with it. Let's have another yeah. question. 
Yeah, Brennan. So the, the question is regarding the distance of stars and how does that light, given that we know the speed of light, um, how does it reach Earth if it was here uh, immediately on, day, on the day that God created it? Uh, starting about 10 years ago, as many of you probably know, Grace has this seminar on creationism every year. And uh, there's been a couple classes on that very question goes way over my head. And there's a lot of options. So I'll be real curious what Michael has to say. Well, it's not my, my area of expertise, but I know a bit about it in that I can say that there's at least five theories we have uh, on, uh, first of all, are those distances that stars, I mean, you can go out to galaxies that are supposedly billions of light years out there. A light year is the, the distance that light travels in a year, meaning that they're, they're you know, it takes billions of years for them to come here. My astronomer friends assure me that those distances are probably correct. But there's five ways to explain it. You've, you mentioned a few already that the speed of light is, you know, it's generally constant here on Earth. But like Mark Amonrud believes that as you get further away from um, gravitational objects, the speed of light increases. Now, Mark, Mark's teaching you, right? Okay, right now, all right, then that's a question you can ask him. There's another contingent, actually the majority of creationists kind of believe this, that has to do with relativity theory. Russell Humphreys um, is one of them involved, and um, an astronomer from uh, Western Australian University in West Australia, um, can't think of his name right, oh, John Hartnett. Uh, look on creation.com, you can find their ideas and he, they believe in relativity in that gravitation changes time. And so when you're near a huge gravitational source, that will, um, let me see, slow or increase it. I don't know my relativity. And so, but you get further out in the universe, away from gravitational objects, time goes slower. So they are saying, in a nutshell, that um, Billions of, uh, uh, the light traveled for billions of years out there, but it only took one day on Earth. But there's other ideas out there. One of them is the creation of light in transit. Um, uh, Problems with that one, some pretty big ones. Yeah, uh, yes there are. But I, let me tell you that we're, we're not alone in this issue. The secular scientists also have the same problem in the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang started from maybe a point. It has varied over the years what the size of this, this object that exploded. It's not an explosion. It's an expansion of space, my astronomer friends tell me. It gets weird the more you look into it. But, um, but in, early in the Big Bang, it's very hot, and you had no matter. It was just all pure light and radiation. As it expanded out, uh, then it changed to particles and atoms and so forth until you come to uh, today, about 13.5 billion years 
later. Early in the Big Bang, well, okay, has anyone heard of the cosmic background radiation? <laughs> okay, what that means is when uh, there's radiation, everything radiates. We're radiating, infrared radiation. And so. Some of us more than others, sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, space radiates at the microwave uh, frequencies at 2.7 degrees Kelvin. 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. And it's, it, the thing is, it's the same temperature that they get from that radiation from all directions. In order to explain this, early in the Big Bang, you, to get a uniform temperature, you gotta have the radiation or the light, whatever you want. Um, it has to go back and forth and be absorbed by particles and whatever's there uh, infinitely fast. Sometimes 10 to the, some guy said 10 to the 60th times the current speed of light. It That's has the theory of inflation if you want to do some more reading. That's right, and it's called inflation. The inflation part of the Big Bang, about 10 to the minus 30th seconds within the Big Bang, it all started. I mean, this gets pretty outrageous when you read this stuff. And um, so that's the problem. It's, called the, it's also called the horizon problem in astronomy, but it's part of what's called the inflation submodel of the Big Bang. That's... Listen, um, why don't we just give a hand uh, to the guys for coming and speaking with us this morning. I have, I have three things I'd like to pass out. Please, yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, actually, Ward, if you don't mind, I'm going to have you pray. And then uh, pass out some things and uh, we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you especially for your word and uh, that we can all trust in it. And please give us all lots of faith to know that it is true and we can uh, count on it, especially in these areas where... Man seems to think they know more than God. And uh, thank you for so many scientists doing research on creationist issues that give us some information to help solidify us in our faith uh, so that we can uh, have uh, logical scientific reasons that help support our belief in the Bible as well. So especially help all these young people here to not get swayed by man's thinking, but to believe that they can trust and go with the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I brought a couple fun things, like I said, when I taught this for a full year. Uh, first off, I have two articles of Acts and Facts that's put, put out by the Creation of Institute. If you don't get those, these are old ones. My wife pulled them out of the garbage last night. So if you want to grab them and see what they are, they're free. That's here. Uh, then here's two fun things, and I didn't know how many people were, so I only printed up 24 of these, so there's definitely not enough to go around, so I'll pass one. Uh, to this side, and I'll pass the other the other side. The concept of both of these is evolutionists and, and, and creationists look at the same facts, and they come up with different answers. You know, I handed these to him, and he still doesn't understand I'm whatever. I'm clueless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you figure it out, don't tell other people for a while. Make them work on it. So I'll pass this one to this side and pass that one to that side. And there's only 24, so it's all you have. The last one is, again, I just printed up 24 of these, uh, 80 reasons why um, the uniformitarian estimates of the age of the earth don't work. Uh, you take evolutionist information and chart it out and say, according to evolution, this thing should only take this long. And it really points to creation. 